the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton is engineering, and we're glad to have you with us. Later today, we'll talk with Michael Berry. He's chief of staff for First Liberty Institute. We'll talk about the latest development in the Coach Kennedy prayer case. This coach from the state of Washington was fired for praying. We'll tell you more about where that case stands as the Supreme Court earlier had decided not to take up the case. But there have been some encouraging developments. We'll talk about that in the five o'clock hour. And we'll talk with Amy Hollingsworth. She's the author of The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, Spiritual Insights from the World's Most Beloved Neighbor. Of course, the movie about Mr. Rogers, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, opens in theaters on Friday. It's a timely conversation about an important figure in our culture. Well, taking a look at the headlines, a backyard gathering of football fans turned into a bloodbath after gunfire broke out in Fresno, California on Sunday night. The shooting left four people dead, six wounded, according to police. Three of the dead were killed at the scene, while a fourth victim died in a local hospital. Responding Fresno police officers were going door to door in the neighborhood in hopes of collecting security camera footage of witness accounts. Uh, They were uh, looking for leads to help them locate the unknown suspects. They were unknown. Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, who met with President Trump several times regarding Ukraine, is scheduled to testify publicly before the House Intelligence Committee this week as part of the Democrats' ongoing impeachment inquiry. But lawmakers from both parties Sunday seemed hesitant to put much weight in what he has to say. This is likely because in a closed-door hearing, Sondland revised his prior testimony to say that he told a top Ukrainian official that U.S. aid would likely not resume until the country issues a corruption statement. Democrats quickly hailed the revelation as proof that Trump in a July 25th phone call tried to pressure Ukrainian President Zelensky into investigating Joe Biden's family business, uh, business dealings rather, in the country in exchange for the release of about $400 million in military aid. However, in prior testimony, Sondland said he had texted Ambassador Bill Taylor, the U.S. charged affairs in Ukraine, that in September saying that there was no quid pro quo. When asked if Sondland was credible, Representative Jim Himes, a Democrat from Connecticut, the number two Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, he said that uh, that's a good question. I'm not going to prejudice his testimony. House Minis- uh, Minority Whip Steve Scalise appeared equally noncommittal on Sondland. Emails reviewed by the Wall Street Journal show Sondland kept several Trump administration officials uh, informed of his efforts to get Ukraine to launch investigations that Trump discussed in his call with Zelensky. In an interview on Life, Liberty and Levin, Representative Devin Nunez, Republican out of California and ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee, told Mark Levin, the host, that the Trump White House became involved in Ukrainian affairs to investigate a smear campaign from Democrats against the president. However, Nunez says the fact-finding mission was twisted and used as an excuse for impeachment. Also, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has invited President Trump to testify before the House Intelligence Committee or answer questions in writing. The president said earlier he's seriously giving that thought some consideration. 
House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and two other top Republicans sent a letter to ABC News on Sunday demanding the network explain why it quashed ABC News anchor Amy Robach's story that would have exposed allegations against the now deceased sex offender Jeffrey Epstein three years ago. The letter to ABC News President James Goldston was first reported by Megan Kelly, formerly of Fox News. House Foreign Affairs Committee Ranking Member Mike McCall of Texas and House Judiciary Committee Ranking Member Doug Collins of Georgia also signed on to that letter. Democrat Governor John Bell Edwards hangs on to his Louisiana seat. However, Republicans procure a supermajority in the state Senate. And Twitter rolls out a ban on political ads covering candidates, elections and legislation. Some suggest this may backfire. Elizabeth Warren's tax plan would hit some with rates over 100 percent. Try paying that. And immigration jails in um, the Trump era are packed, but deportations are fewer than in Obama's era. The president's team delivers a big win for patients by making health costs clearer. More on that later in the program. And as impeachment um, fizzles or, well, flares, the stock market is soaring. Well, on this day in history in 1928, Walt Disney's first sound synchronized animated cartoon, Steamboat Willie, starring Mickey Mouse, premieres in New York City. And on this day in 1883, the United States and Canada adopt a system of standard time zones. On this day in 1959, Ben-Hur, one of my all-time favorite movies, the biblical-era spectacle starring Charlton Heston, has its world premiere in New York City. On this day in 1966, U.S. Roman Catholic bishops issue a pastoral statement on penance and abstinence, which tosses the rule against eating meat on Fridays outside of Lent. On this day in history, 1978, U.S. Representative Leo Ryan, a Democrat from California, and four others are killed in Jonestown, Guyana, by members of the People's Temple. The killings are followed by a night of mass murder and suicides by more than 900 cult members. Ryan A. Jackie Spear, Spear rather now a member member of Congress herself, survived five gunshot wounds. And on this day in 1985, the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, created by Bill Watterson, is first published. On this day in history, 1987, the Congressional Iran-Contra committees issued their final report saying President Ronald Reagan bears ultimate responsibility for wrongdoing by his aides. And finally, on this day in history, 2008, Detroit's big three automakers plead with Congress for a $25 billion lifeline. Warning of a national economic catastrophe should they collapse. Well, the impeachment inquiry against President Trump has triggered a wave of charges, countercharges, court battles, subpoenas and legal threats. Now it's produced the first libel suit. A White House official on Monday sued Politico and one of its reporters over stories and tweets that he says falsely accuse him of lying, deceit and unethical conduct. Kash Patel, the National Security Council's senior counterterrorism director, is seeking more than $25 million in damages in the suit filed in Virginia. We have reached uh, reached a, a tipping point. The lawsuit also names Natasha Bertrand, a political reporter and MSNBC contributor, as well as political owner Robert Albertrand. The allegations, which center on what the president was told about the situation in Ukraine, go to the heart of the case for impeachment. And while Politico is a nominal target of the suit, it represents an aggressive attempt by a presidential aide to put Adam Schiff's handling of the impeachment inquiry itself on trial. Describing the Democratic chairman of the House Intelligence Committee as a demagogue with an axe to grind against the president, Patel portrays Schiff as running roughshod over rules and interviewing witnesses to create a clickbait headline and soundbite 
soundbite to feed to his con- uh, co-conspirators and media sympathizers, sympathizers, end quote. Well, the suit stems from Bertrand's October 23rd story headlined Nunez protege fed Ukraine info to Trump. Patel previously worked for Republican Representative Devin Nunez, spearheading the Intel Committee's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election before joining the White House in February. The political piece said Patel was among those passing negative information about Ukraine to the president earlier this year, fueling the president's belief that Ukraine was brimming with corruption and interfered in the 2016 election on behalf of Democrats. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back to continue. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Before moving forward, I would like to extend an invitation from Pastor Scott Gilchrist and the Downtown Bible Class to attend a special birthday celebration for Luis Palau. He is celebrating his 85th birthday on Wednesday, November 27th, and the Downtown Bible Class is going to go all in to celebrate with him. That's noon on November 27th at Downtown Bible Class. Hope to see you there for a very special birthday celebration for Luis Palau. So there you have it. You have been invited. Representative Jeff Van Drew, a Democrat from New Jersey, stood by his vote against the House impeachment inquiry following the first round of public impeachment hearings last week. But his decision to to um, sway from his party is unrelated to um, unrelated rather to the president. He exclaimed, we have to understand impeachment is something that's supposed to be exceptionally unusual. It's supposed to be bipartisan. It's supposed to be fair. Van Drew said on the latest episode of Maria Bartiromo's Insider on the Fox Business Channel, this is nothing to do with whether you like Donald Trump or don't like him or want to see him have a second term or win an election. This has to do with the institution of impeachment itself and not misusing it, he argued. Well, Van Drew was one of the two House Democrats who broke ranks with party leadership in a highly contentious vote for a resolution setting the rules for the impeachment inquiry moving forward into the president last month. The resolution passed 232 to 196, but lacked votes from Representative Jeff Van Drew, who was uh, long expressed skepticism about impeachment and Colin Peterson from Minnesota, whose district Trump's won by 31 points. At the end of the day, we'll have the same president, the same candidate and a failed impeachment process. And the only difference would be that the president will have an exonerated uh, will have been exonerated of charges, Van Drew said in his statement. Well, discussing his decision um, uh, over the weekend, Van Drew cited a piece on the topic written by French political thinker and historian Alex, uh, Alex de Tocqueville more than 150 years ago. He said, you know, de Tocqueville in 1853 wrote that if a nation was more and more often using impeachment as a way of actually removing its leaders, it would show the deterioration of the nation. It is so rarely used, should be rarely used. And as I mentioned to you before, it is something that during the hundreds of years of American history has never been successfully used. So... There you have it from one Democrat. Well, new developments in the impeachment probe were revealed during two closed-door depositions that took place over the weekend, revealed Representative Lee Zeldin. He's a Republican from New York who called for a delay in the upcoming impeachment hearing until those transcripts are publicly available. A lot of people didn't realize that once the cameras ended on Friday, we then went back to the SCIF in the Capitol basement where there was a closed-door deposition. Uh, David Holmes, assistant to Ambassador Bill Taylor in Ukraine and Office of Management, 
Management and Budget official Mark Sandy. They testified before Congress over the weekend in separate closed-door depositions following last week's highly contentious public hearings. According to Zeldin, Sandy went right to the heart of why there has uh, why there was a hold on aid to Ukraine during his Saturday deposition and called for a release of the transcripts containing Sandy's statement in time for week two of the public hearings. A great answer given, a very informative answer by Mike's, uh, Mark Sandy, Zeldin said, and I think it would change some of the answers given by some of these other witnesses this week. While many of the transcripts from last week's hearings, both public and private, remain unavailable at this time, much of Zeldin's questioning for the upcoming hearing result, revolves rather around a new inf- uh, the new information, and he explained that deposition rules prevent him from referencing the substance of those interviews in public until the transcripts are released. I believe that we should not uh, go forward with the next open public hearing until the rest of these transcripts are made available. You still have those several transcripts, and losing, including both David Holmes and Mark Sandy, that haven't seen uh, been released to the public. I believe that we should not go forward uh, with the next public hearing until they are. Asked whether he found it likely the transcripts would be made public, Zeldin said it was up to House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff to expedite the public release of the transcripts. I don't know if there's that same sense of urgency from Chairman Schiff and his team uh, to get these transcripts done by Tuesday morning. If they uh, could get them released by Tuesday morning, that's fantastic. But if they can't, then we'll move the open hearing back a day or two or three because it's going to change some of the answers that are going to be given as a result. Well, it certainly has piqued my curiosity, but we'll see what happens, happens rather with the timing of that information being made public. Well, House Democrats have opened an investigation into whether President Trump lied to the special counsel's office in sworn written answers he provided to Robert Mueller's Russian investigation. I know you thought that was over, but apparently things don't die in this Congress. The House's general counsel revealed the probe during oral arguments before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals on Monday in a case where Democratic lawmakers are seeking the secret grand jury material from Mueller's investigation. Did the president lie? Was the president not truthful in his response? Response to the Mueller investigation. House Attorney Douglas Letter asked, indicating why the House is seeking the grand jury material. Now, they don't have evidence of a lie, but they suspect there may be one, and it's the next opportunity for them to perhaps undermine the president. Lawmakers are specifically concerned with whether pre- the President Trump lied when he said he did not recall speaking to Roger Stone about WikiLeaks. During Stone's criminal uh, trial, former Trump campaign deputy campaign manager Rick Gates testified that he heard a phone call between Trump and Stone. He testified that after the call, Trump told him that more information would be coming. Gates said he believed this referred to WikiLeaks, although the president did not say that. Stone was convicted on Friday of witness tampering, lying to Congress and other charges. Trump's attorney, Jay Sekulow, dismissed the efforts in a statement on Monday, saying the president's testimony read the answers to the questions they speak for themselves, or rather read them. Democrats are using this investigation as a reason to get the grand jury material from Mueller's investigation. They have previously cited their impeachment inquiry as a basis for why the material should be disclosed. Federal rules, however, prohibit the release of grand jury material except for a certain set of situations, such as judicial proceedings. The House has argued that their investigation of the president falls under that category. And the Supreme Court has temporarily blocked the enforcement of a subpoena for the president's tax returns. 
Chief Justice John Roberts issued the order on Monday calling for a stay on a ruling from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals that allowed for the House Oversight Committee to obtain the information from accounting firm Mazars USA. Roberts put the rule on hold after Trump filed an application with the high court. The House has agreed for a temporary stay while they file briefs in the matter. The Supreme Court gave them until the 21st of this month. The subpoena will remain blocked while the Supreme Court decides whether or not to hear the case. The committee will file an opposition to the Trump applicant's motion for a stay of issuance of the D.C. Circuit's mandate pending deposition of their upcoming um, sertoria. Uh, petition, House Attorney Douglas Letter said in a letter to the court. The Supreme Court is next scheduled to meet on Friday and may discuss the case then. Trump has also filed a similar uh, request in a, a separate case in which New York prosecutors have subpoenaed his tax returns from Mazars USA after a lower court ruling said it could be enforced. Well, there is an election coming up in 2020. It's less than a year away now. And there's a new Democratic frontrunner, at least in Iowa, and his name is Pete Buttigieg. The mayor of South Bend, Indiana, holds a clear lead in the first in the nation caucus state, climbing to 25 percent in a new CNN Des Moines Register, a media com poll of likely Iowa caucus goers. Uh, that marks the 16-point increase in support for Buttigieg since the September CNN DMR poll. Uh, this survey comes on the heels of other recent polls that have shown Buttigieg joining the top tier of the Democratic primary race in Iowa. Behind Buttigieg, there is a close three-way battle for second with Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren at 16 percent, former Vice President Joe Biden and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders each at 15 percent. Since September, Warren dropped six percentage points, Biden slipped five points, while Sanders gained four. Surveying the rest of the field, no other candidates get into the double digits for support. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar lands at 6%, while five candidates register 3%. Senators Cory Booker of New Jersey, Kamala Harris of California, Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii, investor Tom Steyer and businessman um, Andrew Yang, former New York Mayor uh, Michael Bloomberg, who has yet to officially announce a 2020 bid, gets 2%. The rest of the field receives 1% or less. Buttigieg's uh, significant rise comes in the wake of a heavy investment of time and money in Iowa. Over the last few months, he's built one of the largest on-the-ground operations in the state, supplemented by a robust advertising campaign and strong public appearances, including a speech at the Democratic Party's biggest event of the year earlier this month in Des Moines. He ele- his uh, elevated standing in Iowa is grounded in steady support across Different demographic groups, he does roughly as well with self-identified Democrats as he does with independents. He also performs about the same with previous caucus goers as first-timers, and his support is nearly uh, even in cities, suburbs, towns, and uh, rural areas. The 37-year-old mayor does slightly better among those with incomes more than $100,000 at 32% and with self-described moderates at 32%. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. But when we come back, we'll talk about uh, Buttigieg's problem with African-American voters. Um, His website on Black America uh, and his plans use stock photos of minorities, including Katrina victims and one woman from Kenya. And apparently that's a big deal because apparently nobody else uses stock photos. We'll tell you what the big deal is. Much ado about nothing from my perspective when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Michael Berry. He's Chief of Staff for First Liberty Institute on the latest development in the Coach Kennedy case, uh, where he prayed by himself for many, many years. Then he was eventually joined by others and fired from his position as head football coach. We'll tell you what encouraging developments are on the horizon. We'll also talk with Amy Hollingsworth. She's the author of The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, Spiritual Insight from the World's Most Beloved Neighbor. The movie about Mr. Rogers is released in theaters on Friday, so we'll have a conversation about um, other aspects of um, Fred Rogers' life behind um, the scenes. Well, Pete Buttigieg's uh, campaign, I guess that's the way you say it, Buttigieg's uh, campaign was scrubbed uh, or has scrubbed a photo of a black woman and child from a section of his website devoted to the Democratic presidential candidate's plan to battle racial inequality. Well, the problem, as uh, was first reported by The Intercept's Ryan Grimm, was that the image was a stock photo of a woman in Kenya who apparently has nothing to do with the campaign. It was a stock photo. Now, they're often purchased to make a point for all kinds of things, but apparently that's frowned upon in a political campaign. Well, it's been learned that the photo mix-up was far from an isolated case for the South Bend, Indiana mayor uh, in his uh, campaign. Its website has used other stock pictures of black individuals seemingly unaffiliated with the campaign, especially in promoting the Douglas plan, which is billed as an investment in the empowerment of black America. Well, uh, the uh, the photos uh, were later identified as individuals who knew nothing of and were not involved with the campaign. And while campaigns have long used generic stills and clips and ads and elsewhere, they sometimes do so at their own peril. And for Buttigieg, who soared to top tier status in recent weeks, particularly in Iowa, but still struggles with African-American voters who uh, compose roughly one fifth of the primary electorate for the Democrats, the duffed up over the stock photo falls within a sensitive area for the campaign. It comes as he's launching a new effort to court black voters with a series of events surrounding Wednesday's Democratic presidential primary debate in Atlanta. Senator Kamala Harris of California, certainly a rival for the Democratic nomination and one of the several black candidates of the 2020 race, called it a big mistake. Speaking at a campaign event in Nevada on Monday, exploiting the situation, she says he's going to have to answer for that. Let's be clear that the Democratic nominee has got to be someone who has the experience of connecting with all who um, we are as the diversity of the American people. Well, using a photo that happened to be a stock seems like a tempest in a teapot to me, but nonetheless, apparently it's a big deal and it presents an opportunity for his rivals to make much hay out of uh, using stock photos. Um, Buttigieg, by the way, does very poorly with African-American voters within the Democrat Party. He is um, last in the list of those who have an appeal. So for him, it's especially important that he present um, a an image, if you will, uh, that is uh, going to capture the attention and the support of African-American voters. Meanwhile, Louisiana Democrat Governor John Bell Edwards was projected to win a second term by defeating Republican uh, challenger Eddie Rispone on Saturday's runoff election, a result certain to rattle Republicans as they look ahead to 2020. The Associated Press called the race for Edwards, Louisiana's only Democrat statewide elected official with 96 percent of precincts reporting and the incumbent leading uh, Rispone by more than 19,300 votes out of more than 1.45 million votes cast. Um, Edwards shouted to, to supporters in Baton Rouge, who dat, how sweet it is in accepting uh, his victory. After local television stations called the race for Edwards at about 9.40 p.m. local time, Rispone called Edwards to concede 
Um, we have nothing to be ashamed of, Rispone said, uh, speaking to Republicans gathered. Uh, we have over 700,000 people in Louisiana that really want something better and something different. Well, the results will um, come as a major disappointment for President Trump, who was eager to see Rispone regain the Louisiana governorship for the GOP, particularly after Kentucky Republican Governor Matt Bevin was defeated by Democrat Andy Bashir 11 days earlier. Trump made three trips to Louisiana to rally his supporters against Edwards, an effort that motivated not only conservative Republicans, but also powered a surge of anti-Trump and black voter turnout that helped Edwards. And as for the president, God bless his heart, Edwards said, using a Southern phrase uh, that's known as a backhanded insult. Trump won Louisiana by 20 percentage points in 2016 in that election, likely to win the state again in 2020. But the results there and in Kentucky will raise questions among Republican lawmakers about the strength of the president's coattails as he seeks re-election. The president put in a vigorous plug for Rispone on Twitter shortly after the polls opened on Saturday, reminding locals to get out and vote. In another tweet, the president provided a link to polling locations and said, Louisiana, vote at Eddie Rispone today. He will be a great governor. Well, Edwards, 53 years old, was helped when Louisiana's top-tier GOP officials decided against running for the seat. Rispone, the 70-year-old owner of the Blatton Rouge Industrial Contracting Company, has never run for office, had little name recognition. He hitched his entire candidacy to Trump, introducing himself in ads that focused on support for the president. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced on Monday that the U.S. government will ease its stance on Israeli settlements in the West Bank in the latest move by the Trump administration to bolster Israel's position and undermine Palestinian claims regarding land sought for future state. Pompeo essentially rejected the 1978 State Department legal opinion, holding that civilian settlements in the occupied territories are inconsistent with international law. He also said the White House was reserving, uh, rather reversing an Obama administration directive that allowed the U.N. Security Council to pass a resolution declaring the settlements a flagrant violation of international law. The Trump administration is reversing the Obama administration's opposition to Israeli settlements in the West Bank, Pompeo said. The establishment of Israeli settlements in the West Bank is not inconsistent with international law. End quote. Pompeo added that the Trump administration believes that calling the Israeli settlements illegal under international law is not moving a peace process between the Israelis and Palestinians forward. Calling the establishment of civilian settlements inconsistent with international law has not done so. The hard truth is that there will never be a judicial resolution to the conflict and arguments about who is right and who is wrong as a matter of international law will not bring peace. Pompeo went on to say the vision of peace this administration has. We've created space for this. Trump already broke with his uh, predecessors by deciding earlier to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, moving the U.S. embassy to that city and closing the Palestinian diplomatic office in Washington. Even though the decision is largely symbolic. It could give a boost to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, assuming, of course, he remains the prime minister, who's fighting for his political survival after he was unable to form a coalition government following recent elections. Well, in addition, it could spell further trouble for the administration's off-promise peace plan, which is unlikely to gather much international support by endorsing a position contrary to the global consensus. The Netanyahu government was dealt a blow on settlement just last week when the European Court of Justice ruled products made in Israeli settlements must be labeled as such. The 1973 legal opinion on settlements is known as the Hansel Memorandum. 
It had been the basis for more than 40 years of careful, wor- carefully worded U.S. opposition to settlement construction that had varied in its tone and strength depending on the president's position. The international community overwhelmingly considers the settlements illegal. This is based in part on the Fourth Geneva Convention, which bars an occupying power from transferring parts of its own civilian population to occupied territory. It hasn't worked, Pompeo said about the Obama administration's move. It hasn't advanced the cause of peace. Pompeo went on to say that the U.S. would not take a position on the legality of specific settlements and that the new policy would not extend beyond the West Bank and create a precedent for other territorial disputes. He added that the decision did not mean the administration was prejudicing the status of the West Bank in any eventual Israeli prime minister, a Palestinian peace agreement. This is only solved by negotiating uh, negotiations rather between the Israeli and Palestinian uh, peoples. The anti-settlement monitoring group Peace Now, along with AP reporting, has found a sharp increase in settlement planning and construction since Trump, uh, Trump took office. Israel captured the West Bank and East Jerusalem in 1967. Uh, in the Mideast War and quickly began settling the uh, newly conquered territory. Today, some 700,000 Israeli settlers live in the two areas, which are both claimed by the Palestinians for their state. After the war, it immediately annexed East Jerusalem, home of the holy city's most important religious sites, in a move that is not internationally recognized. But Israel has never annexed the West Bank, even as it has dotted the territory with scores of settlements and tiny settlement outposts. While uh, claiming the fate of the settlements is a subject for negotiation, it has steadily expanded them. Some major settlements have over 30,000 residents resembling small cities and serving as suburbs of Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. The Palestinians and supporters say the settlements undermine hope for a two-state solution by gobbling up land sought by the Palestinians. And we learn that Russian troops took over the Kobani airfield in northern Syria last week, one day after U.S. troops moved out, according to a report. Russian state media showed the Russian flag flying over what had been the center for U.S. operations after ISIS in the region um, had held it. Other images showed Russian military helicopters landing on the runways and Russian troops deploying around the base. The air base is located along Syria's northern border with Turkey. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, the singing Christmas tree begins this weekend with a Friday night performance, 7.30 p.m. at the Keller Auditorium. Two performances on Saturday, a matinee at 2, and again on Saturday evening at 7 o'clock p.m., Sunday at 2. On Friday following Thanksgiving, a 2 o'clock matinee performance and an evening performance at 7 o'clock p.m., followed by two performances on Saturday, November 30th, 2 o'clock matinee and 7 o'clock p.m. evening and Sunday, December 1st at 1 p.m., the final performance of the 57th Singing Christmas Tree. Get your tickets now. We'd love to have you uh, uh, join us and uh, bring in the, the Christmas season with great joy. Tickets currently available. You can call the box office at 503 557 8733. That's 503 557 8733. Well, when it comes to improving the nation's health care system, the Trump administration 
is trying to do administratively some of the good things it hasn't been able to do legislatively. On Friday, it took two major steps toward transparency in pricing and options. Patients will now better understand what their choices and costs will be. The president and his team deserve credit for this effort. Again, it's uh, administrative, not legislative. Specifically, the administration formally proposed one new rule, uh, not yet final in the administrative process, and finalized another. The first, the Transparency in Coverage Rule, would require health plans to provide real-time online information, including an estimate of their cost-sharing liability for all covered health care items and services in order to empower consumers to shop and compare costs between specific providers before receiving care. Also, health plans would disclose on a public website their negotiated rates in in-network providers and allowed amounts paid out to for out-of-network providers. Making this information available to the public is intended to drive innovation, support uh, uh, informed price-conscious decision-making, and promote competition in the healthcare industry. Well, the second rule, finalized on Friday, has an unwieldy 22-word title, but its upshot is that hospitals must now provide patients with clear, accessible information about their standard charges for the items and services they provide. The information has to include additional information such as uh, common billing or accounting codes and that sort of thing. Well, just about every person in the United States has had an experience of confusion, frustration, anger, and sometimes severe financial distress due to the bureaucracy and sheer obscurity of health care pricing. Make a visit to the emergency room, for example, and for months you'll be receiving unexpected bills from the providers of each aspect of your care um, without you having any sense of whether each bill is um, uh All are just part of your overall costs. Well, conservatives have said that free market forces should provide the cure for flaws and hyperinflation in your health care system. Market forces can't work, however, if pricing is opaque. So consumers can't affect the market through millions of individual decisions if they have no information on which to base their decisions. Well, with these two rules, the Trump administration is trying to provide the price uh, signals and other information necessary for patients to be informed and uh, to be able to act as rational consumers. As they do, not only will each individual benefit from more real choice and uh, sure understanding of how the billing system is going to affect them, but the whole system should benefit from the downward pressure on prices that comes from millions of people making real choices with calculable results. Now, that's if people take advantage of this information. So again, um, the Trump team, uh, through administrative policy, uh, attempting to uh, make the rules in the healthcare system a bit uh, better for those who use it. Well, would Americans willingly, or should I say, would you willingly hand over your private medical records to Google? Well, infuriating, uh, infuriatingly, uh, it's an irrelevant question. According to the Wall Street Journal, the search giants is engaged in a secret effort to secure and analyze the personal health data of some 50 million Americans in 21 states. The initiative is known as Project Nightingale. It was undertaken in partnership with Ascension, the second largest health system in the U.S. Um, it's revealed that the data involved in Project Nightingale pertains to lab results, doctor diagnoses and hospitalization records, among other categories, and amounts to a complete health history, including patients' names and dates of birth. So it is connected to you, the healthcare consumer. More infuriating, neither patients nor doctors have been notified. 
According to Mr. Copeland, Robert Copeland, the U.S. columnist who made the revelation, Americans are finding out about this um, outrage courtesy of an anonymous whistleblower who posted a video on the Daily Motion social media platform. It contained a document dump of hundreds of images of confidential files relating to Project Nightingale. The video has since been removed due to what uh, Daily Motion states is a breach of the terms of use. According to The Guardian, the whistleblower introduced the video by saying, I must speak out about the things that are going on behind the scenes. The video explained there were four pillars in Project Nightingale and that by the time the file transfer is completed next March, some 50 million Americans' health data will be under Google's control, whether they like it or not. Privacy concerns? Well, in a statement, Ascension asserted that all of its Google-related efforts are HIPAA-compliant and underpinned by a robust data security and protection effort and adherence to Ascension's strict requirement for data handling. Why Google has it is another matter. Google stated its work with Ascension adheres to industry-wide regulations, including HIPAA, regarding patient data, and comes with strict guidance on data privacy, security, and usage. Google also insists the data obtained from Ascension cannot be used for any other purpose than for providing these services we're offering under the agreement, and patient data cannot be uh, cannot and will not be combined with any Google consumer data, end quote. Well, these assertions ring exceedingly hollow from a company whose founders and chief executives were caught in on tape bemoaning the results of the 2016 election and outlining their efforts to thwart Trump's agenda and that of the worldwide populist movement, a movement utterly anathema to Google's globalist ambitions. Well, documents obtained by Project Veritas from uh, Google insider Zachary Voorhees, who reviewed uh, or rather received a wellness check from San Francisco police following a police confirmed mental health call from Google, revealed the search giant had a file called News Blacklist site for Google Now. Voorhees insisted it was a blacklist list rather of news sites restricting them from appearing on news feeds for any Android Google product. If that's the case, then Google executives, including CEO Sundar Pichai, have been lying to Congress. If they lie to Congress with no consequences to date, why should lying to the American public be problematic? And if they're not lying, why was the video removed from Daily Motion? Google's uh, desire to use the data mine, d- the, the data rather, to mine it and to write algorithms based on patient data, uh, the whistleblower adds. In addition, Google seeks to use the data to build their own products, which can be sold to third parties. It's not the first time Google is currently engaged in data mining the personal information of millions of children, courtesy of the G Suite for Education accounts, and it's uh, Chromebooks used in classrooms nationwide. And yet again, much of it is occurring without parental knowledge or consent. Furthermore, Google's previous forays into, medical fi- into the medical field are also problematic. A deal between United Kingdom hospitals and the search giant's artificial intelligence subsidiary, DeepMind, failed to comply with the data protection law, according to the ruling by UK's data watchdog, the Information Commissioner's Office. In addition, a class action lawsuit filed last June contends that a 2017 deal between Google and the University of Chicago Medical Center was marred by Google's failure to um, make patient records anonymous. 
The suit also asserts that the UC Medical Center did not notify its patients, let alone obtain their express consent before turning over their confidential medical records to Google for its own commercial gain, The Verge reports. Google's latest um, machinations have uh, precipitated an investigation by the Office for Civil Rights in the Department of Health and Human Services, which will seek to learn more information about this mass collection of individuals' medical records to ensure that HIPAA protections are fully in play. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Then we'll talk with Michael Barry, Chief of Staff for First Liberty Institute. We'll talk about Coach Kennedy and his prayer case and Amy Hollingsworth, The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, the book, when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero rest. Well, for many of us, we've been following the case of Coach Kennedy. As you might recall, he was fired from his high school football coaching job after he prayed after each game. Well, it started out as a singular event involving just himself. He was joined by others and the rest you may recall. Well, here to tell us about the latest is Michael Barry. He's chief of staff for First Liberty Institute on the latest development in the Coach Kennedy uh, prayer case. And hopefully there is good news. Michael Barry, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Well, former high school football coach Joe Barry, or rather Joe Kennedy, uh, was fired for praying after each game. He has been fighting to get his job back ever since. That was in 2015. For listeners who may not recall the details, can you tell us what happened to Coach Kennedy? Well, I mean, it's exactly as you said. He started off praying by himself uh, alone at the 50-yard line after the games. Uh, after a while, some of his students asked him what he was doing. They didn't really understand what he was doing, and he explained he was just uh, giving thanks for the opportunity to be a coach and for what they had done on the field. And, um, you know, after that went on for, oh, probably seven or eight years, the school district, Bremerton School District there just outside of, outside of Seattle, told him that he could not do that any longer and that if he did, they would fire him. Uh, you know, the problem is that, that Coach Kennedy is a, uh, a, a retired U.S. Marine who served our country in Desert Storm, and he really considered that a slap into the face to, to his service and sacrifice that, you know, he fought for these freedoms and now they're being stripped away from him. And so, uh, you know, the school district eventually fired him. And First Liberty Institute is fighting with Coach Kennedy to try to get his job back. Now, was there a reason given why after so many years uh, he was forbidden from he didn't uh, he didn't uh, advertise, he didn't recruit. He just simply uh, took a place at the 50 yard line and was sometimes joined by team members from his team, sometimes by team members from the opposing uh, team and others. Was there a reason given why now this is no longer acceptable? Well, I mean, they basically said, because we're your boss and we said so, right? We're, we're the government and we said so. Uh, they, they they said that, and actually the shocking part is this is what the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals actually agreed with, is that he doesn't have any First, First Amendment protection under the Constitution for praying, uh, even if he's praying by himself, even as the school district recognized, they conceded in legal documents that it was a quote-unquote fleeting moment of prayer. Uh, and, and they said, but... Uh, you know, he's an employee of the school district. He's a public employee, a government employee. And if we tell him he can't do it, he's not protected by the Constitution because he's a government employee. And outrageously, the Ninth Circuit agreed with that. Mm. Now, the Supreme Court declined to take his case earlier this year. That doesn't mean that the, the Supreme Court didn't think there were merits. I think that's important to clarify. But explain what the Supreme Court said in declining to take up this case. 
Well, that was probably the most fascinating turn of events. Is the Supreme Court said, uh, look, I think what's important to know is the Supreme Court takes less than 1% of all the cases that are sent to it. So the odds of any case getting right. to the court are, are less than 1%. And what the court said in Coach Kennedy's place it, case is, uh, we're not ready to take your case yet. And he said, look, there are some still some factual questions that we need the judge to develop on the record. We need the judge to answer some of these questions and, and, and then... Uh, you know, we might be willing to hear this case at some point in the future. They didn't say one way or the other. But they also said something very, very interesting that if anybody pays attention to constitutional law in this country, they, they paid very close attention to this. The court said, look, we also realized, we also noticed that the, the legal claim that, you, that Coach Kennedy brought to the Supreme Court was only a free speech claim. That, that he did not bring a free exercise of religion claim, which is kind of interesting, right? Because isn't this case really about religious mm -hmm. freedom, right? And they said, we think we know the reason why he only brought a free, free speech claim and not a free exercise claim. And that's because for years now, for decades, the Supreme Court's free exercise uh, case law has been a mess. And it's been all over the map, and it's really been anyone's guess as to how a particular case might come out. And so nobody really wants to take the risk of, of, of raising a free exercise claim. And there's a really bad case from back in the in the 90s uh, that is really kind of the cause of that. And they said, but, you know, in Coach Kennedy's case, he hasn't asked us to revisit that case. Uh, but maybe, you know, if somebody asks us to revisit that case from 1990, then we might be willing to do so. So it's kind of a, hmm. you know, it, it, the way we look at it is the Supreme Court really laid out a roadmap for, uh, you know, whether it's Coach Kennedy or someone else, where, you know, if you want to try to clean up this really bad case law that's causing people all over the country to lose their religious freedom, here's a way you can do that. Now, in that um, that statement, that was uh, Justice Samuel Alito. He actually issued the statement, but Justice Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh also uh, were signatories on that decision. Now, my understanding is a motion for summary judgment has been filed. Can you explain what that is and why that's a positive sign in this case moving forward? Yeah, a motion for summary judgment is just a, you know, kind of a fancy legal term for when uh, you've completed discovery in the case. So kind of the, the fact-finding stage of the case where the, both parties are, you know, uh, interviewing witnesses and turning over documents and stuff. And you feel like, okay, given all the facts that we now know in the case, and there's no more really factual disputes, we think the law is on our side and we should win. And you basically ask the court to just declare, hey, uh, it's really a way for the court to avoid the expense and the time and the resources of going through a full-blown trial if it looks like one side or the other should be the clear winner at the beginning, right? And so uh, that's, that's what we have filed on behalf of Coach Kennedy. We strongly believe that the Constitution and federal law are on our side. And now that we've answered some of those factual questions that the Supreme Court said they wanted to answer, we're ready for the court to rule in our favor. Now, things really started uh, up again in August of this year. He had hoped that perhaps he could be restored to his former position for this uh, this football season. That's not obviously going to happen uh, now. What do you see as the timeline? And it's difficult to predict, I'm sure. Uh, but things continuing to move and maybe the court, Supreme or otherwise, um, uh, weighing in on this this case well that is a difficult question and uh, you know it's probably not going to be this season right because here we're already you know heading into the end of november mm -hmm. uh and so it's probably not going to be this season and I, I think that's something that shouldn't be lost on people is that this will now be the fourth season in a row where where joe kennedy has not been able to be a coach that's four entire years of, of a high school class from freshmen sophomore juniors and seniors so that's uh, an entire high school class that has not been able to have the benefit of having 
Coach Kennedy roaming the sidelines, being their football coach. And, and make no mistake about it, he was a beloved coach. I mean, he was, uh, in his own work, he wasn't really the X's and O's guy. He was the guy that taught them character, discipline, hard work, you know, the, the types of things that we, we, we need so desperately uh, in, our, in our high schools and in our, in our society in this day and age. Well, we'll certainly continue to follow this case. It, it's encouraging to hear that there's motion forward with this uh, summary judgment. And we'll probably talk to you again at some point in the future as we see uh, the direction this is likely to take. Absolutely. We're hoping for a, a, a swift victory. And if so, you know, we're happy to, to talk all about it. Look forward to it. Thank you so much, Michael Berry. Thank you for having me. Again, Michael Berry is chief of staff for First Liberty Institute on the latest development in the Coach Kennedy prayer case. You can continue to pray for him and we'll certainly keep you up to date as things move in this uh, this matter. Up next, we're going to talk with Amy Hollingsworth. She's the author of The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, Spiritual Insights from the World's Most Beloved Neighbor. The movie uh, about Mr. Rogers opens in theaters on Friday, so it's a really timely uh, conversation. That's coming up next right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, he had a calming voice with a slow, deliberate cadence, a smiling face and gentle eyes. He was kind. This is the Mr. Rogers that we knew on the set of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. But when the camera stopped rolling and the music faded, who was the real man behind one of America's most iconic children's programs? Well, written by a close, longtime friend of Fred Rogers, the simple faith of Mr. Rogers reveals the driving faith behind the creator of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Fred Rogers, he captured the hearts of millions of children and adults alike in his over 900 episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood that aired from 1968 to 2001. He was known for his routine by beginning the show by entering the set and changing from his suit jacket into his signature cardigan sweater while singing It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Well, the upcoming feature film starring Tom Hanks, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, highlights the character of Fred Rogers behind the scenes and his relationship with a magazine reporter who reluctantly agrees to do an assigned story for him. But what's missing is the true look at the motivation behind Fred's passion for the loving treatment of every neighbor. Well, in The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, my next guest reveals the inner workings of Fred Rogers' faith, including his perspective on prayer, the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of forgiveness, and eternal life. It offers exclusive content and the faith that helped establish and maintain the wonderful person Fred Rogers was. It includes personal letters between Rogers and my next guest, uh, the spiritual legacy left behind by the man who can be summed up by one of his favorite quotations from St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Well, my guest is Amy Hollingsworth. She is the author of the best-selling The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, which last summer earned a spot on the Wall Street Journal's bestsellers list and was ranked as Amazon's number one bestseller in Christian inspiration. Amy is the first person to ever interview Mr. Rogers about his faith on television. A Mr. Rogers neighborhood cast member called her the daughter he would have wanted. Amy is also the author of Runaway Radical, co-written with her son, Jonathan, and Gifts of Passage. She's been named one of USA Today's top 100 people for her influence on pop culture. A former psychology professor, Amy is the mother mother rather of two grown children, both writers, lives in Fredericksburg, Virginia, with her husband, Jeff, and joins us today to talk about her longtime friend, 
Mr. Rogers. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk about Mr. Rogers. Well, let's talk about how you first came to know him, because uh, it was something of a surprise to both of you. As I mentioned, you were the first uh, person to do a television interview about his faith. Uh, And the both of you, I think, were a little apprehensive at the beginning, but uh, you (laughs) developed a fast friendship. Tell us a bit about it. Well, I I was working in Christian television at the time, and I really, I, I didn't really grow up with Mr. Rogers. You know, I was sort of out of that demographic when his show began to air nationally, but I really discovered him for the first time through the eyes of my two-year-old son, who was a whirlwind of a toddler, but he would sit very quietly and listen to every word Mr. Rogers had to say. So I started listening to every word Mr. Rogers had to say, and I was amazed at at, at the depth of his program, the, his insight into children, everything about him surprised me. And so I had this idea to go interview him. And the network that I was working for said, oh, go, you know, good luck. You know, we've been trying for 20 years and he's always turned us down. So I wrote a letter and asked for the interview and didn't hear back and didn't hear back. And then one night I was just sitting at the kitchen table and opened the day's newspaper and there was an op-ed piece called It's a Psycho Babble Day in the Neighborhood. And it was written by Don Fetter, who at that time was with the Boston Globe, and it was this terrible, scathing opinion piece about how Mr. Rogers was this horrible person, and he was destroying children, and you know, it was just awful. So I, at that point, I had done enough research on Mr. Rogers that I, I knew enough to defend him. So I just got pen and paper, and I wrote Don Fetter a letter, and I was, you know, told him all the reasons why he was wrong, and at the end I said, you know, shame on you for, you know, attacking the one person who's trying to do something positive for my children. And so I sent that to Don Fetter. I I don't know if he ever read it. And I also sent a copy of of the op-ed piece in my letter to Mr. Rogers' people because I thought, well, they should know that the bad press is out there. So a couple days later, I got the phone call and that he had agreed to do the interview. And it wasn't until I got to Pittsburgh that I found out that it was the letter that had convinced him that I was sincere enough to be trusted that I wasn't just another journalist after a rare interview with Mr. Rogers, but I was a mother who was trying to do something positive for her children. And I think, I think the trust that, that informed the rest of our long friendship began uh, when he read that letter in def- that I wrote in defense of him. Well, that had to have been thrilling to, um, to have met him face to face and to give the rest of the world an opportunity to learn more about the man behind the character, which wasn't much of a departure uh, that we came to know as Mr. Rogers in his neighborhood. Now, let me ask you a little bit about who Mr. Rogers was before he became the famed character that is now so beloved and uh, who about whom a, a, a movie is going to be released here very mm-hmm. shortly. A television wasn't his first uh, his first calling. Young Fred Rogers had other plans, as did his parents. Tell us a little bit about young Fred Rogers and how his uh, connection with television began. Well, he... He um, he was planning to go. He went to college for music, um, but he had planned to go to seminary, and that was his intention and his parents' intention for him. But during spring break, his senior year of college, he was home visiting, and he saw television for the first time. And it it wasn't that he saw it and thought, "Wow, this is this is going to change the entire world of communications." What what he saw on television was. One person was was uh, people throwing pies in each other's faces, 
And, and he, he was appalled by that. And he said, if, you know, he, this is what he told me. He said, I got into television because I saw people throwing pies in, e- in each other's faces. And he said, that to me is such demeaning behavior. And if there's one thing that makes me mad, it's one person demeaning another. That really makes me mad. And so here you have the man who sang the song, you know, what do you do with the mad that you feel? He took his own mad and decided to go into television. So he went into television. He worked for some shows in New York City and then eventually um, had the Children's children's Corner, excuse me, in Pittsburgh, where he just worked behind the scenes with the puppets. Yeah, he was quite a puppeteer, which if you uh, saw the program, featured large in his um, Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Yes, he he did do that. And what happened was he... um, uh, the head of uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Company had seen him interact with children and offered him a daily program called Mr. Rogers in Canada. And Fred had assumed, you know, I'm just going to be a puppeteer. I'm going to be behind the scenes. And, and the, the head of the broadcasting company said, oh, no, I've seen you interact with children. What I want is a daily visit. I want you to be on screen, and I want you to communicate with the child on the other side of the television set the way I've seen you interact with real children. And that's how Mr. Rogers came to be. So it's called Mr. Rogers in Canada, and eventually it moved to Pittsburgh and was called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Now, when you spoke with him, was he astonished by the the degree of success that he had um, enjoyed over the the span of his career? You know, I don't think... Uh, I don't think he thought of it as success. There's a, um, I have had the privilege of seeing the new film, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which opens on Friday with Tom Hanks. And, 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 and a reporter asked him that question. And, and he said, you know, fame is a four-letter word. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're famous. It matters what you do with it. And so the reporter says, well, what are you trying to do with it? He said, I'm trying to give parents and their children positive ways to express how they feel. And so he didn't see it as fame or success, but as his ministry to help children and their parents find ways to express how they feel, but in ways that didn't hurt them or anyone else. In your book that we're talking about today, The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, Spiritual Insights from the World's Most Beloved Neighbor, um, you uh, divide the book in, in various chapters, and each one of them begins with uh, the phrase, toast sticks for the heart, toast sticks for the eyes, toast sticks for the hands. Explain what that phrase means uh, <laughs> to Mr. Rogers. I know, it's unusual, isn't it? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because the, the summer before um, Fred passed away, he told me the story about uh, from his own life when he was five, and he had a, a neighbor um, in his neighborhood whose name, everybody called her Mama Bell. So Fred used to show up on her back doorstep because that it was strategic because that led, you know, straight into the kitchen. And when he would visit Mama Bell, she would make him toast sticks. And so one day she said, you know, would you, Freddie, would you like to make toast sticks on your own? And, and he was so surprised, you know, so she let him put the toast in the toaster and um, slice, you know, slice them into sticks and put the jam on it. And, and it made him feel really good that she would, you know, trust him and show him how to do that. And then a short time later, she got very sick and died. 
And he wondered, you know, years later, you know, did she know that she was dying? And maybe that she had offered this experience to him as sort of a comfort to him. And then he would know how to make toast sticks after she was gone. And so I was, I was, I had just returned from his memorial service in Pittsburgh. And I was sitting on my back porch and I was thinking about that story. And I thought, you know, he left me toast sticks, Mm. but they're toast sticks of a spiritual kind. So through his letters, through our visits, through his phone calls, um, through the sermons he sent me and and speeches and, uh, you know, all the communication between us over the next nine years, he left me a legacy of spiritual toe sticks. And so that's why I used that theme throughout the simple faith of Mr. Rogers to show the, the spiritual lessons that I feel like he gave me before he went to heaven. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Amy Hollingsworth. She was the daughter that Mr. Rogers uh, would like to have had. The book is titled The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, Spiritual Insights from the World's Most Beloved Neighbor. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Amy Hollins- Hollingsworth. She's the author of A Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, Spiritual Insights from the World's Most Beloved Neighbor. She not only wrote about him, but she actually knew him and spent time and developed a relationship with him and shares uh, those insights with us in this uh, sweet book. Now, in your first chapter, you write about um, Mr. Rogers' recognition of the importance of taking time, the importance of silence. And one of the things that struck many adults was the cadence of Mr. Rogers Mm -hmm. on his program, that he spoke very slowly. He gave you an opportunity to think about what was being said. How did that reflect uh, the Mr. Rogers that you knew um, off the set? Well, you know, it's interesting because that's the very first question that I asked him because I was there during um, while he was taping a series of, of episodes on fast and slow. And, and I had already decided to ask him this question, but I just, I asked if that was purposeful, you know, the slowness, you know, you have the yellow caution light at the beginning of the program. And, and he just said that, you know, I said, is that deliberate, the, the, the slowness, the pace and everything? And he just said that, you know, um, he said, well, for me, I need to be myself. And then he took a long pause. <laughs> he said, I've ne- of course. And he said, I, I've never been a hyperactive run around kind of person, which actually he was describing me in that moment. But he said, I've never been a hyperactive run around kind of person. And so for me, and, and then he said, the most important thing that you, the most important gift that you can give another person is your honest self. And he said, so for me, being quiet and being slow is being myself. And that's my gift. And so, you know, over the years, and as I said, I was a hyperactive run around kind of person. I think maybe that's one of the most enduring legacies that he left me is that the opportunity to slow down and to really reflect on, on life. And one thing that I've done, Georgine, that I've, I've done this since he died. But whenever I travel, whenever I stay in a hotel, I never turn the television set on. I don't turn the radio. I don't have any noise at all if I'm there for a day or for a week. And I've done that in honor to him to show him that I have, that I have taken seriously his lesson that slowness and quietness are just absolutely essential and we don't have enough of it in our world today. Now, Mr. Rogers, um, 
was a man of prayer as well. Talk a bit about his views on on prayers and more importantly his practice of prayer. Right. He he would he got up at every morning at five AM and prayed. And um and people have often asked me like, how is how is it that he was able to concentrate on the person in front of him? He when you were with him, he gave you all of his attention. He was not distracted. And people said, How do you think he was able to do that? And it, it wasn't magic. You know, it, it's something he cultivated. He cultivated through his times of prayer and Bible reading this amazing I don't want to call it attention span, but this amazing ability to pay attention to the person he was with at the moment. So it sounds like a contradiction, but the truth is he he cultivated that through his times of solitude and, and silence. And and when we're silent, he believed that, you know, silence leads to reflection and reflection leads to appreciation. And then appreciation looks about for someone to thank. And so he believed that the quieter that we, we were, the more we were able to thank God for his goodness in our lives. You also write about his view on the wondrous work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, that chapter is actually about the times that we prayed for each other. There, there were, it's, it was an extraordinary thing that there were times where I'd be going through a very difficult time in my own life, or he would be going through a difficult time, and we just sensed it because we prayed for each other every day. And 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 he had said to me, um, you know, the that the. Um, he said, I'm so convinced that the space between the television set and the viewer is holy ground, and what we put on television can, by the Holy Spirit, be translated into what the person needs to hear and see. And without that translation, he said, it's all dross as far as I'm concerned. And so he relied on the Holy Spirit every day. He said, every day when I walk into the studio, I say, dear God, let some word that is heard be yours. And so he trusted... He prayed every day, and then he asked God to translate what he said. He asked the Holy Spirit to translate what he said into what the viewer needed to hear and see. And you wouldn't believe how many testimonies have come out of his program. I include some of them Mm -hmm. in The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, but people who... People who were delivered from drug addiction and all kinds of things from watching watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's, it's, It's astounding. Well, it is, but because he recognized it wasn't just what he presented in front of the screen, but the hard work that he had done before in prayer and, and preparation that ministered to people in ways that one would not necessarily directly connect to the program. Exactly, exactly. And he said sometimes people would say, you know, when you said this or did this, oh, that meant so much to me. And he said, I would look back at the script and say, I hadn't said that at all. But thankfully, because of the translation of the Holy Spirit, that person got what they needed to hear and see. And so, you know, it, and you're right, it's not, it's, it's, it's really important for people to know that he cultivated that. You know, that was, that was a fruit of his prayer and silence and, and all those things in his life. Um, he cultivated that. So what that means is it's, a, it's attainable for us as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, his, his example is attainable to us. His, his goodness and his kindness and his reflection and his silence are all things that we too can aspire to. What do you think from your experience of walking with and getting to know um, Mr. Rogers was the most remarkable thing about him? Goodness. Um, wow. I think, I think it was his capacity for friendship. Um, 
you know, when I interviewed him, I, I, I just wrote him a thank you note, you know, as a courtesy and thought, well, that was a wonderful experience for me, but now it's over. And then, you know, we just started writing back, letters back and forth. And, 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 you know, he would call and I, and I went back to visit him. And I think his capacity to really um, love and care for his neighbor is, is probably the most extraordinary thing about, about him. And he, he has something, he has something that I like to call his theology of neighbor. And that is, he said, a neighbor is whoever you happen to be with at that moment, especially if the person is in need. And then once you know, so, okay, there, that's no loopholes, right? <laughs> if it's whoever you happen to be with at the moment, and th- then there's no loopholes. And then he said, once you know that everyone is your neighbor, you have a choice to make. And you can choose either to be an advocate or an accuser. And this is what he told me. I have it memorized because I say it to myself all the time. And he said that, that um he really believes that evil would like nothing better than to have us feel awful about who we are. And that would be back there in our minds. And we would look through those eyes at our neighbor and only see what's awful. In fact, look for what's awful. But he said, Jesus would want us to feel as good as possible about God's creation within us. And that would be in our minds. And we'd look through his eyes at our neighbor and only see what's wonderful about them. Mm. Well, once again, the book is titled The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, and it's the rest of the story. The movie, from what I understand, and you've seen it, is well done, but it doesn't tell this aspect of his character, which is perhaps the most significant part of of Fred Rogers' uh, life, what motivated him, what what moved him in the direction that he took, and really is an explanation for the significant influence that he had over many decades in, uh, in the neighborhood that he created for the nation's children. Right, and it's really his motivation, and, and the film does a, a beautiful job, and they do, a, they do talk actually about his faith, and they show him reading scripture, and they, there, there's one scene where he's kneeling by his bedside, and he's praying. He prayed for so many people every day. He has a little book, and he's praying for people by name, and you know, that touched me so deeply when I saw that scene, because I know my name was in that book, and his name was in my book, you know, the fact that we were able to pray for each other. And, and there, there's another scene in the film where his wife, jo- Joanne, somebody calls him a living saint. And, and Joanne said, I, I don't like that term. He wasn't a perfect person, but he did things every day. He prayed, he read scriptures, he swam laps, you know, he wrote hundreds of letters, he prayed for people by name. So he had these unbelievable disciplines that just helped him to, to stay grounded. Well, I so appreciate your um, telling the rest of the story and filling out some of the blanks that uh, we've wondered about. Again, the book is The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, Spiritual Insights from the World's Most Beloved Neighbor. Amy Hollingsworth, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much. A real pleasure. God bless. You too. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I hope you had a wonderful weekend of fellowship on Sunday or Saturday night, whatever day or time you meet with uh, the body of Christ. We spent some time out at Shoals Community Church, had a great time of fellowship with the the pastor, his family, and the church there. I um, was noting in the Christian Post what's happening in China and how grateful we ought to be for the fact that we can gather together without 
uh, pressure, whereas uh, many in churches around the globe face just that. Uh, the latest um, I wanted to pass along to you is the high-tech surveillance that's now being uh, installed in many churches in the People's Republic of China. These devices include face and fingerprint scanning equipment. They're now being installed in churches all across the country. It really started in one particular place, but it has since expanded. According to a report from Bitter Winter, it's a publication that explores human rights and religious freedom in China, a facial recognition system that was placed in a government-controlled church, the Three Self Church, uh, in one area, the capital of uh, Xinjiang, Uh, The autonomous region there is now being introduced elsewhere in China, and this gives the leaders, the People's Republic of China, an opportunity to surveil, to follow, and to keep records on who's coming and going in the church. On October 6th, Mu Yang Church, literally shepherding church in the central province, uh, which is also home of the two Chinese Christian councils in Huangqi City, had two uh, biometric devices set up on its first floor. Since then, congregation members have to stand in line to have their faces and fingerprints scanned before being allowed to enter the church, according to the publication. Around the same time, in the city-state run by Tianan Church, facial recognition equipment has been installed there as well to check the believers who attend the gatherings. Now, a Christian told the magazine several weeks ago that local authorities required every meeting venue established by three self-churches, and these are the state-approved or permitted churches, in that city, Huangxi, um, to take fingerprints of fellow believers and put on file their personal and family information. The churchgoer who uh, distributed by the order since, or rather disturbed by the order since it requires not only that church members be under constant tracking and surveillance, but that their families and relatives are implicated by association as well. Now, other local believers also reported that since October, multiple state-sanctioned churches in Huangxi began using fingerprint sensors and face scanners to record their attendance at services. In late September, members of a three-self church venue in one community had their fingerprints taken. The person in charge of the venue told them that all congregants have to have their fingerprints scanned to attend Sunday services. Just like employees punch in at work, the person in charge of one church venue in this same community in Huangxi, explained to a churchgoer. In this way, the church can know clearly who attends the services and who doesn't. Well, the bottom line is, it isn't the church knowing. um, It's the government requiring the church to provide that information to them. Well, Chinese Christians believe this is yet another example of the ever-increasing amassing of power by the government. Well, state surveillance of churches is not new in China. What's called the Sharp Eyes Project has long had a presence in state-run churches with cameras placed even in washrooms of certain places of worship to ensure comprehensive monitoring. Now, I wonder if you were required to attend uh, in order to attend the church of your choice, that you would be fingerprinted, uh, your photograph taken, facial recognition technology, surveillance in um, various parts of the building, including the restrooms, if you would attend church at all. Again, it's not new in China. According to the South China Morning Post, the name of the surveillance program seems to stem from a Mao-era slogan aimed at urging people to denounce those who fail to follow Communist Party creed. The people have sharp eyes, is that um, that slogan. The surveillance program intends to cover all rural areas with the goal of achieving blind spot free monitoring by the year 2020, covering all regions, sharing across all networks available at all times and controlling at all points. 
Earlier this year, reports emerged that state-run churches in Guindao, uh, a city in the eastern province of Shandong, uh, were ordered to stop singing songs from the worship songs or spiritual song collection and were instead ordered to sing from a book of hymns approved by the state. The new approved songs only feature themes about loving the nation of China, celebrating birthdays and funerals, and respecting parents and the elderly. Not exactly your uh, usual hymn fare. The hymns published by the government only promote political, secularized content. All believers are unwilling to sing them, one director of a state-approved church told Bitter Winter in June, referencing the chorus of one of the hymns as an example. China is beautiful. China is great. The sons and daughters of China love China. Bless China, O Lord. Well, at least they added, O Lord. Uh, Well, those things may all be true. China is beautiful. China is great. The sons and daughters may, in fact, love the country, but that, of course, is not the purpose of church, where there is one sovereign to whom our prayers are raised and our songs are lifted. Uh, Keep the People's Republic of China church, uh, churches in your prayers. Uh, As we reflect back on the wonderful time many of us enjoyed with fellow believers over the weekend, there are those who are seeing the noose tighten for them, and yet they persist. This is precisely why there's an underground church there, to avoid the kind of oversight and interference that the uh, People's Republic of China is imposing, has always imposed, and now it seems is more uh, overt about that policy. Tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to our Radiothon with Transitional Youth. Uh, Rana Mall will be with us. She's the Executive Director of Transitional Youth. I so appreciate her insight. I'm looking forward to sharing with you the unique um, nature of homelessness as it relates to teenagers. There are programs for adults, even adults with children, but when you're a teenager, many of the programs simply do not apply. Transitional youth is very unique in that it's not just taking care of kids who are living on the street. It's making sure that they have a route off of the street. We'll talk more about uh, the homes that they are providing. It's really an exciting development in the Portland metro area. Breaking Cycles is our theme, and we'll let you know how you can come alongside and help the efforts of transitional youth who are ministering to young people all across the Portland metro area. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Gary Thomas, When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. And on Thursday, Elizabeth Bra, God Spies, the Stasi's Cold War Espionage Campaign Inside the Church. Stay with us all week. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.